Radio. I am your host and founder of the show, Lori LeBay. My own mother had dementia for 30 years and it was life-changing. Hence, I started Alzheimer's Speaks. I think it's really important that we raise all voices regarding dementia. And so bottom line, our company is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we want to help companies and individuals expand their brand footprint so that people know they exist and what's going on and where they can get help. And I I have to say thank you to our audience. You guys are so fantastic. You have helped spread our work all around the world, which I never imagined would even be possible. And so your loyalty um, has a special place in my heart because you're making a difference every time you like, click, and share. If it's our radio show or the blog or our dementia chats, um, videos or YouTube channels, every time you push that out, there's somebody in need that might might just be ready to grab onto it. Um, this is such a kind of a divisive um, disease with so many stigmas attached, not only to the person diagnosed, but to family and loved ones as well. And, and we've got to do better as a community and as a world. Now, today you're going to be able to call in um, and talk with our guests. We are really lucky to have Meryl Culver with us, uh, with the A-List and Joan Griffin who is uh, with Mayo Clinic, and we're going to be talking about some research. And that call-in number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And uh, you can call in, and I'll be watching, and and I will go ahead and, and pull you into the conversation as we go along. Now, before I do introductions, I want to give a shout-out to a few organizations. Um, The first one I want to mention is the Dementia Action Alliance. I'm really excited. They are going to be doing their second North American uh, Dementia Conference, which is going to be held in Atlanta, Georgia, June 20th through the 22nd. And it's all about reimagining dementia, engaging, empowering, and enabling uh, people to live graciously with the disease. And there you will hear um, a lot about um, and, and from the voice of those with dementia. So it's, it's going to be a great conference, and I hope that you can uh, check that out. I also want to give a shout-out to the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Um, you can find them at alzheimersprevention.org. They do a lot with health and diet and exercise and meditation, kind of a holistic approach. And then the um, Calendar Cards, who has a memory system that they've created to help people live independently. But in addition to that, they've been so nice, and they have created the Memory Cafe directory, um, which they, they not only have one for the U.S., but they're starting to build them for other countries. And we now have over 600 memory cafes in the United States, which is just absolutely unbelievable. And um, go and check them out at memorycafedirectory.com and um, see what you think. I think you'll be just as excited as I am about about the memory cafes. I'm going to introduce my co-host with me today. Uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Harry Urban. Harry is in Pennsylvania, and he has been living with dementia for many years now. So welcome, Harry. How are you doing today? It's a bright, sunny day here, and I tell you what, I see spring in the air. Oh, well, we're not seeing it in Minnesota at all. I'm just seeing little tiny flakes pile up on the ground right now. So you're believing in that groundhog that spring is coming early, I gather. 
Absolutely. Um, it's it's almost 60 degrees here today. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, it's going to be changing because our weather's coming to you. Um, next, I'd like to introduce uh, Craig Hankey. Craig also is living with dementia, and he lives in Wisconsin, so he's probably getting some of our Minnesota and Midwest weather. How are you doing today, Craig? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Good. Thanks for joining we're us. To, we're supposed to get five to eight inches of snow here, so. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's what we're enough. looking at, too. <laughs> okay. We'll watch for that groundhog in the Midwest here that Harry seems to have found. Um, next, I want to introduce Meryl Comer. Uh, Meryl has been on our show before, and she is just a fascinating woman. I was uh, able to meet her at a conference years ago, and I was just so, so impressed with her. Meryl is the co-founder of um, Women Against Alzheimer's and the co-principal investigator of the PCORI, which is the Alzheimer's Patient and Caregiver Powered Research Network. And she, this is also in partnership with the Mayo Clinic and UCSF Brain Health Registry and Us Against Alzheimer's uh, Network, which they are just doing amazing, amazing work, um, all of them. So welcome, Meryl. How are you today? Thank you, Lori, uh, and a shout-out to you because we really share your spirit of raising all voices. And the only thing you left out, which it really defines me, is that I am uh, an at-home caregiver. I've been one for 23 years for both my husband with early onset and my mother with the later stage age-related dementia. So I am living, I say I run a spa. <laughs> well, that is wonderful. Twenty-three years is a long is a long time, and I'm sure it makes people's mouths pop open. I know when I said uh, thirty years with my mom, I always get that reaction. <laughs> so, well, I'm anxious to get to our conversation, but I want to introduce Joan. Um, Joan uh, is with Mayo Clinic, and she has uh, her PhD. She's an associate professor of health science research at the Mayo Clinic. And um, she is also the scientific director for their care experience program, which I, I want to learn more about at Mayo's uh, Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center uh, for Science and, and um, Healthcare. And she also is, um, works with a research program which is dedicated to transforming patient and family caregiver experiences um, in care and in their health outcomes, which I think is just so important. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you with us today, Jane. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Lori. Thanks for having me. And I guess uh, echoing what Meryl said, I too am a, a caregiver for someone with dementia. And so uh, I think all of us have a shared experience. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So, yep, it it really puts a different light on things when, when that Absolutely when that does. Occurs. Yep. Yep. Changes the perception. Well, I'm going to start out with Meryl here and throw the first question um, to her. And that is, what is the vision that you have behind uh, the A-list? that now has over 6,000 online members that are answering questions from researchers and regulators and, and the medical community at large. I just, when, when I saw this developed, I got so excited. I thought, what a fantastic venue to connect people. What was your vision? How did you, how did you come up with this? Uh, it came out of frustration, quite frankly, uh, <laughs> that uh, some of our voices were not being heard or listened to or we were never uh, being asked the questions we wanted people to ask us. And it was really the idea that we all have stories to tell, and they're very personal and important to each of us. But if we are going to really inform a scientific community and bring our insights closer to research, then we have to behave in a slightly different way. And our goal was to say that it's time uh, for those living with the disease, for those at high risk, their care partners, that re researchers, regulators, and 
payers understand what matters most to us. So the idea was, here's a way to get your voice heard. It validates your lived experience with the disease and across the disease spectrum. And it looks at the dynamic of relationships. And we are adding to the scientific body of evidence for researchers like Joan to take and um, actually accelerate their process. So we were excited by the idea that this was going to be possible. And as advocates, we felt it was time. Wonderful. I had to giggle when you said it was developed kind of out of frustration because that's how Alzheimer's Speaks was born, too. It was just <laughs> like, okay, it's not working for me. There's got to be another another way. Now, during this time um, period, you know, with your with your surveys and stuff you're putting out there, can you explain to our audience what types of topics do you cover? And I would imagine you've probably had some real aha moments um, from from this process itself? Well, you know, we've, we've learned as we've developed. And, you know, our topics range from the pulse of the community to conversations with loved ones. What are we really saying? We're also very respectful of those living with the disease. So we will query the, the person living with the disease, their care partner, and we will ask questions to see whether or not they understand one another or they're even communicating with each other. And then we, one thing we're, we're insistent upon is that we give whatever our findings back to the community. We make sure that what we've learned, we share back. So it's not that it disappears somewhere and you never hear about it. You, we use the pulse of the community and then push it out and say, this is how we feel about issues that matter most. So we looked at what kept people from engaging in clinical trial participation. You know, is it, and sometimes the answer is transportation to and from. It is uh, the fact that what can we do at home? So the queries really are trying to be sensitive to the community and their experience. We also uh, offer open-ended questions, and then people can really unload. And within that, uh, they give us insights that we might have missed because there is a rigor to asking questions. Uh, those who live with the disease get their own set of questions. Uh, caregivers get their version, and those at high risk get another version. And then you look at each of those verticals and say, okay, these match and these don't match. Uh, we've done one on the military and the fact that many coming back with post-traumatic stress, um, actually it accelerates dementia. So who in that community is touched by a disease uh, like Alzheimer's and dementia? We've looked at the importance of faith so or emotion. Um, we go across and we try to go deeper. We try to ask the questions probably that only those of us in the community even know exist or issues that we talk about privately, but we don't necessarily talk about it publicly. And this is a great way for your voice to be heard and validate what you have to say. Um, I think it's so important that we respect that we're experts in our lives, and uh, but we're much more powerful if we uh, are combined so we can show data sets and say, no, it's just not one person's story. This is how a community feels. So that's the, we've done them and we have a lot more coming up. We are doing a veterans survey. We have results coming out soon from a, an emotion survey. So we are looking for uh, new topics. Uh, we're also going to be looking at issues like sundowning. What's your experience with sundowning? Which is the confusion in the early stages of the disease. Or what about lucidity? What happens when those moments in the disease, when a loved one seems to wake up and connect with us in ways that take our breath away, that we never forget uh, across the journey? So these are very personal issues that we're exploring, but our goal is to really help researchers like Joan 
And trust me, it is hard to do research in the caregiving space. Just ask Joan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will get to Joan here shortly. I love that you referred to um, people as being experts of their own life. And to me, it's always been asinine that we haven't tapped into the patient and the families, um, you know, asking what are their needs. We've always just kind of made assumptions. And I think that this is a really nice avenue of really, like you said, collecting the data, letting the voices be heard, even though I would imagine that these are um, anonymous in terms of, of you know, when people um, fill these out. You is brought that a very, very important point up, Lori. Everything is de-identified. And we are on HIPAA-compliant platform to protect people and the information they are sharing. So what we are working with is de-identified data. We respect privacy, and that's most important to us. So I like the idea that in a virtual community, we are bypassing stigma and ageism and really trying to get to the heart of the issues. Uh, One thing, one aha that came, Lori, that might interest you is We ask questions about what matters most to those living with the disease. Then we ask the care partner, and we ask the care partner, how do you think your loved one would answer that question? And what we saw was that many times their view is totally different, and it's important that we know that. (laughs) Um, So many times we're accused of trying to answer for a loved one when they, they're doing fine. They don't need us answering for them. Uh, but, again, it teases out these little things that, you know, always get in the way of good communications. Wonderful. I'm going to just pull Harry in and, and um, Craig because I'm interested in terms of what, you know, A, Harry, are you familiar with the A-list and, and the surveys that they're doing? Yeah, I, I've, uh, I've 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 heard some about it, and you know what? I, now I've been I was diagnosed uh, over 15 years ago now with Alzheimer's, and um, when when uh, when people see me, they they think several things. I was misdiagnosed. Uh, I'm faking it. Uh, you know all that nonsense things. But if you look at my my cognitive testing, you can see that I have issues. Now, um, if, they, if, if the experts would listen to us living with this disease, um, they will find out they are, they are now finding out what we've been trying to tell them for years. Uh, and one of the things is there's, there's, a, there's a cognitive ability and a functional ability. And they're finding out people like me have a higher functional ability than I do um, my cognitive ability. Now, they're finding out that people with a high functional ability live longer with this disease. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's because now they're studying now they're not studying the, the, the medical aspect of it, but they're now looking at the people that are doing well. Why are they doing well? And they're finding out that it's because they have a higher functional rate than the people that don't. Wonderful. And, well, thank. You. And and it's and it's so it's so interesting. Um, now I I was just asked to, to to go through a study, and they're trying to find out why I'm doing so well as I am. As a not as a course of disproving what I'm saying, but but trying to understand why I can do the things I do, and they're coming to an understanding of that the the people living with this disease, the more active they are, uh, the more engaged they are, that the better they do, and that's why I spend so many years trying to break down the myths and stigmas of this disease and try to convince people that that don't put us on a sofa, don't put us in a chair, that we can do some wonderful things. Now, yep. we need help. We need help. We need understanding. But 
give us a chance. That's all we're asking. Well, and I think what's wonderful about that is, you know, with the A-list, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to um, help pull some of that stuff out. And I would agree, my mom um, functionally was very engaged, felt very purposeful. And, and to this day, I say that's why she lived as long as she did. And um, and doing the tests, you know, I mean, she would, she couldn't, she just couldn't do those at all. But I, I love these surveys where they're all inclusive and they're digging a little bit deeper. Craig, I just want to ask you if, um, if you have maybe any topics that you'd like to see them um, do on the A-list. Anything come to mind? Um, probably more stuff that has to do with the, the caregivers and the spouses that have been, also that are caregivers okay. and how they and how they how they view what the uh spouses or, or caregivers are are actually saying compared to what the person with the disease is having. Okay, so kind of that whole whole communication piece that, that Meryl had mentioned, which I think is really good because in testing that out, you know, one one isn't lining up with what the other one is, is necessarily thinking. I want to pull Joan in here. And, um, Joan, I just want to see if you want to add anything to the conversation we've already um, had um, prior to going into the next question. Anything you'd like to add? Well, I, I love the statement of experts in their own life because I think that we have experts in their own life for the people who are living with dementia or Alzheimer's, but we also have experts in their own life for the caregivers who are managing the care and you know doing the day-to-day work. And I think sometimes uh, the work that we've been doing with the ALIS, um, sometimes both of them are ignored and, and sometimes they're not, but I think from the work that we've been doing, it's really interesting to hear how um, how caregivers perceive their own expertise and how how valued it is in the um, healthcare system. So, mm-hmm. I would echo what everybody else has said. I think that that's uh, they've got some really good points to make. Great. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the A list and how it connects <clears throat> communities with with researchers, you know, to advance the studies. How exactly does it work from your angle? Um, you know, perhaps this is a question that um, that Meryl can jump in on too. But I want to go ahead and start with you on this. Um, well, I can tell you how it worked for me, which is I I got connected with Meryl and. Um, and us against Alzheimer's, and I think that the A-list was just kicking off when, when we first met. And I went to her and said, I've got this idea, and I don't know how to find caregivers because they're not listed in medical records. They're not easy to find, um, you know, because they're often attached to the patient. And so is there any way that you can help me find caregivers? And she said, oh, yeah, there, we've got <laughs> this new thing that, that's called the A-list and it might be the perfect thing for you, and it was. It was a great, great resource for me. Um, you know, we were really interested in how caregivers, um, what the caregiver's role is in the healthcare appointments for people with Alzheimer's or dementia, and what could we consider to be best practices for physicians in integrating caregivers into the point of care. Um, we had heard a lot from caregivers that, they were seen that they consider themselves to be part of the healthcare team. You know, they consider themselves to be the ones who are managing the care and doing the medication management and doing the day-to-day nursing tasks. But when you talk to physicians, they often thought of caregivers as just an extra person who's delivering history or getting a second opinion on how the person with dementia or Alzheimer's is doing. So there was this disconnect between how they saw each other. And we were really interested to try and figure out from caregivers' perspective, but also from people who were living with the, the disease, what did they think physicians and healthcare teams should be doing to better integrate the caregivers? And so that was the research that we started off with the A-list. And Meryl and her team were able to put us in touch with um, I mean, we had a whole protocol that we put through our ethics board and we were able to um, uh, use the list in order to find people who would be interested in participating in the research. 
And like I said, it, it, it's been a wonderful experience as a, as a researcher. Have you found that your um, rate of response has increased um, compared to how you would normally kind of go on a fishing expedition trying to, trying to find these people? Oh, it was it was incredible. So what we did is we sent out um, letters from um, a, a set of letters to people living with the condition, and then a set of letters to caregivers. And then if they were interested, they contacted us, and then we had our study team um, call them and see if they wanted to participate. And I think we had almost ninety five percent of the people want to participate. And that is just unheard of in my world. <laughs> you know, wow. we're usually pretty happy if we get about half the people that want to participate. Um, but it was an enormous response. And I think part of that comes from the fact that most of the people on the A-list, the people that contacted us, I should say, that volunteered were very active and really did want to participate in something that they thought was important, could improve um, healthcare the way it is right now and, you know, really advocate for the person that they're caring for, for other people who are living with a condition. So to me, it just, it, it kind of hit all the things that we needed it to. Yeah. Well, and to me, it just makes sense. I mean, especially when you've got a disease where there is no cure, we really don't even know what causes it. You know, there's, there's so much research going on. People want to be proactive. They want, they, they want to help. They want, they don't want the next guy going through this. And so I think that it's just a fantastic, you know, collaboration that you guys are working on. Meryl, anything you want to add to that? Well, I think the fact that there is a focus on a caregiver, let's be honest, uh, we don't define ourselves as caregivers until years pass in the disease. We're spouses, we're daughters, uh, we're sons, um, and so that definition, I've always felt to find us, if, you, if you've been, been at it a number of times, so we're running interference. We're trying to keep things normal. We're trying to maintain our loved one's independence. And when we go into a doctor's office, we're treated as invisible. Now, I'm all about my husband or my mother, but it's as, as if we don't have anything to add to the conversation when we're the ones closest to our loved ones with the disease. So that's what I loved about Joan's work. She was really trying to improve or look at best practices. So I wanted Joan to talk to the clinicians. We wanted her to have the research capability to be able to talk to them and say, listen to this community. This is where where you're not connecting and how we can make it better. So that's why it was important. The other point was, if we're honest, for those of us who raise our hands for clinical trials, we have an 80% screen fail rate, and many of us get rejected. And that's even more true in the earlier stages of the disease now because they have to write find the exact right patient and you can't have comorbidities like diabetes or hypertension. But what happens to those people? So you're rejected and you feel lost. Why get involved? But I'm saying, no, let's stay in this. Let's stay together. Let's stay close to the research until the next opportunity arises for you. And let's tell them how we feel. <laughs> let's get yeah. in their face. <laughs> well, and, so. and that is such a, a point because I have heard that so many times of I'm tired of trying. They don't accept me. We go through all of these levels. We get all excited. And then it's like, no, sorry, you don't qualify. And and it's just, it's you know, a, dementia gives you its own um, emotional roller coaster, but that that failure, you know, that kicking out process. I mean, it really is and it takes a negative toll on people. And, and we hear that just so, so often. And, and with these ones that you're doing, I mean, they're really open to, to most anybody to be able to go in and answer these things. It, it doesn't make any difference if you've had diabetes too, or if you've got a heart problem, because you're, you seem to be going more on an emotional and connection level um, versus, you know, going in at a, a cellular level. Absolutely, you know, with, with exactly. Yeah. Which is very you important. Know, oh, go ahead, John. 
I was just going to say it's interesting. I was doing some research with um, with some caregivers of people who had heart failure, and uh, you know we were expecting them to say a lot of the same things that that you hear from caregivers of people with dementia or Alzheimer's. And what we heard most of the time was it's not the heart failure that's so difficult. It's the Alzheimer's. It's the diabetes. It's all the other, it's the cancer. It's all the other conditions. I mean, it's, it's sort of naive for us to think that people living with Alzheimer's don't have a lot of other comorbid conditions, whether it be, you know, diabetes or, or, um, you know, depression or, uh, some type of cancer. And so I think the medical community is coming around and beginning to understand that the strict criteria for clinical trials needs to change because we're not mm-hmm. helping people as much as they need to. But I think that advocacy groups who are bringing this up over and over again um, need to be loud and need to be heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori, may I just add that I really am so happy that Harry and Greg are on the line uh, because it's very important that we listen to the voice of those living with the disease. Uh, you're our anchor. Um, you know, I still, after 23 years, don't know if I'm giving my husband a good shave. <laughs> They're little things. They're personal things. And that's why uh, I'm really thrilled that you're well enough and uh, able to participate because you're representing those who no longer have a voice. And that's one of uh, one of the other things I think the A-List does well. So uh, we want to make sure that everybody is uh, validated in this lived experience. Wonderful. And Craig, I just want to ask you, how does, how does that make you feel hearing, hearing Meryl say that? It makes me feel like I want to do more, more advocating um, yep. than I'm doing now. And Wonderful. I'm not involved in a whole lot of advocacy, but I'm, I'm starting to get into the DAI and DAA stuff. Uh, hopefully well, that, get involved in that and be a little more advocate. That's wonderful. You know, a little appreciation and understanding goes goes a long, long way. Harry, I have to ask you, what are, what are your thoughts to what Meryl just said about appreciating your involvement in your voice? Well, well, without me, it's my, it's about time, um, <laughs> because <laughs> we've been we've been we've been trying to tell our stories. And the myths that go with us, because we have this disease, nobody listens to us. Okay, now it—that's why I, I said in the in the very get go that that it it's really funny to us living this disease that the experts are now finding out what we've known for years, and we were willing to share that information with them, but they were unwilling to accept what we were saying is valid. May I add add to that, Lori, because what happens classically is Harry gets to speak, and and this is true of all advocates who are living with a disease uh, like Greg or Harry, and it's their story, and it's only about one person. So they call it in the scientific trade, and Joan can correct me, we're treated like soft data, okay? When we get lots of you and you you have a shared experience, then we're harder to ignore. And that's why these surveys are our vehicle to say, pay attention. This is not just one person's experience. This is what many people are experiencing. And that's why we become evidence-based. And, Joan, you might want to just help us understand how you can then use information that, you know, does have an IRB status and why that's important. Because we have to understand, we have to talk your language if we're going to be heard. And and before you answer that, Joan, if you can explain to people, because a lot of people don't even know what IRB is. 
<laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. So an IRB is called, that's a short uh, acronym for the Institutional Review Board. And it's, you know, sometimes called the Ethics Committee. And anybody who does research that involves human subjects or animals, for that matter, uh, is required to go through their institution's IRB or their Institutional Review Board. And that committee reviews the, uh, the study protocol, what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, who you're going to reach out to, what you're going to say to them. Absolutely every step in the study is reviewed to see whether it's, it, it meets the ethical standards that the, that the government has set out. Um, it's, uh, it's a thorough review, and then sometimes you go back and forth, and the IRB will say to the researcher, you know, this wording is not appropriate, or it's leading, um, or, you know, we think that you are contacting these people too many times, and you're going to be putting a burden on them. And they, they tell you kind of what their feedback is, but until you get the stamp of approval, from the IRB, you cannot proceed with your research. And when you get money from some of the federal agencies, you can't even begin to get your money until it's gone through the Institutional Review Board. So it's a really important step um, to protect the privacy and to protect the, uh, the patients, the participants who are in the research from any kind of unethical behavior or unethical um, studied procedures. So this is done from everything on clinical trials to, you know, the work that I did with the A-list, which is more qualitative work where we ask people to kind of share their stories. Um, it also protects me as a researcher because it shows that I've gone through the steps and that I am trying my best to protect the participants that are on in my research studies. So that's what the, IR, the IRB is. And I think that moving things from stories to a research protocol that's reviewed by the IRB and approved is one of the first steps towards putting together evidence around a subject that can help policymakers, third-party payers, um, even, you know, health system leadership to see what's important. I think one of the areas that, um, that we kind of forget about is when research is created and published, what we're trying to do is put together a lot of evidence together, sort of body of evidence, in order to do a couple things. One is to change the way that um, physicians and healthcare teams practice medicine so that they're doing it in the way that has the most evidence uh, another way is to influence policy, and we know that policymakers lean on research to understand, or at least we hope they do. <laughs> we hope that, <laughs> that policymakers are looking at research to inform the way that they're building policy. Uh, and then the third, one of the third, I guess there's probably a more, more than three, but the third one that I usually think of is that health insurance companies look at research to try and determine what they're going to approve and what they're not. And so it's, it's important to take that step from stories to research in order to kind of influence or inform those three groups because they have such an, a huge impact on the way that healthcare is delivered in this country. Wonderful. I know we're going through the, um, the process, the IRB process in our Roseville um, Alzheimer's and dementia group and trying to put a survey together on dementia-friendly airports. And man, what a process that is! <laughs> you know, and, and we've got it one can be long and just, tedious. <laughs> yeah, it, she just thrives on it. We're so grateful to to Colleen. But it's she gets it's it and, really, really important to do it because I think without it, I mean, our we have to make sure that the participants in research are 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 in a safe place and that they're not being advantage of, or that all the pieces are in place to make sure that they're not harmed. You know, we have mm -hmm. too much of a history where people have been harmed. So even though it's tedious and it takes a long time, it's really important. 
Yeah, exactly. I want to um, go over to uh, Meryl and and pull you back into the conversation. I know that you have a a, a growth goal of getting the A list to ten thousand members yeah. this year. How, how are you going to do it? How are you going to uh, do it, Meryl? <laughs> well, before I go there, let me just one add one point about the IRB from the user experience. Anybody getting on to one of our surveys. We're going to ask the question, are you willing to opt in? And that is important, and that is part of the IRB protocol. Because, again, it is one more layer of protection. We are respecting. We will give you and tell you exactly and be as transparent as possible what the ask is going to be. But then you get the choice to opt in. So I just want to make that point. As for our goal to grow the A-list to 10,000, that is our goal. And what we've done uh, successfully, and we, we want to grow more, is to create partnerships with other organizations that have their own dialogue with their community. Uh, so, for example, we have worked with the Alzheimer's Association and Trial Match. We've worked with Home Instead because they have an ongoing conversation with their community, and many of our surveys are applicable to uh, their conversation. So we share that, and again, here's a case where they continue to have the relationship, we get the data, and we share the information back so that we can uh, really uh, expand uh, who gets the feedback on the information, and we found it very successful. We looked at issues involving, you know, people coming into your home to help offer care. So uh, we've done some very interesting things. We have often looked, also looked at whether or not people are willing to do self-assessments to begin to know whether, hey, I ought to push my doctor more about saying, you know, should I be taking a cognitive test? So um, I think this is an opportunity, but for individuals to sign on, we do, in, we do partnerships, we do individuals, and you sign on. Um, Harry and Greg will help you if you're not signed on yet. Um, you just sign on to the A-list for the number four research.org, and you can sign up and uh, pick the surveys you want to answer. If it's not of interest, don't waste your time. Uh, but we'd love to get our numbers up to 10,000 this year. So it's a very ambitious goal for us because some people drop out or can no longer participate. So uh, it's a very active community. So please help us spread the word. Great. Thank you. Um, Joan, I wanted to um, switch gears a little bit because you had mentioned, or maybe Muriel had mentioned kind of the the role of the caregiver, how they perceive themselves versus the, the healthcare team, and um, that the healthcare team didn't really look at them as anything but kind of a, a history list, a knowledge base. Um, what are you seeing? Are you seeing some shifts in that? I know I, know I am. Um, slower than I want, but I, I do think um, I do think the medical professionals are starting to to shift their thought process in who's part of the team. Um, you know, I guess from the data that we collected, I, I you know I it's kind of hit or miss. It sounded like from what people were telling us, um, some people felt very engaged with the, their healthcare team. And the healthcare team, you know, uh, really saw them as a valuable partner. Others said that it wasn't, um, they never really felt like they were uh, taken seriously or that their expertise was, was appreciated. Um, I think where we found a lot of problems is when people started talking about anybody outside of primary care and maybe their neurologists, but a lot of t people were talking about if they went into the emergency room or if they went to, uh, you know, an oncologist or a cardiologist, then the caregiver became sort of pushed in the corner again, even though that may be an even more important time for the caregiver to be involved because it, it's, a, it's a complicated scenario. And, you know, sometimes it, it takes a lot more time or energy to explain all the things that are going on and, um, uh, you know, and getting the caregiver's perspective is really important. 
around medication management and all those things. So I, I don't know if it's changing, but I certainly think that caregivers are being a little bit more outspoken, um, and and I think that they're being heard a little bit more. Uh, the other place where I think we saw some differences was with spouses versus children, and so the you know the non-spouse caregivers seem to be um, much more. Um, so I think probably less um, taken a little less seriously, and maybe kind of thought of as more annoying or nagging um, <laughs> than spouses. Spouses, you know, I think that there's more of an understanding that you're living together full time. This can be burdensome. You're doing all this work. Where if it was the children coming in, it seemed like they had an agenda, and the um, at least this is the perception that the caregivers that we talked to had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think that it may be moving, but again, I think it's moving slowly. Yeah, I think one of the things that could really help, and, and this might be an interesting thing for a survey, is I, I think our verbiage really matters. And, you know, I I use the word caregiver, but I always use it, try to use it in a, in a realm of education, because I think caregiver sets us up um, to feel like we can't receive anything. I think it sets us up for um, for getting burnt out and feeling overloaded, where if we switch that terminology from caregiver to care partner or to care companion, that puts you on the team. And that shows an alliance with, you know, what's best for that person versus just being, you know, somebody who does a job, who takes care of tasks. Um, and it makes it more of a two-way street. So I, I would really like to see, um, even with the survey, doing uh, doing something on verbiage, on what what would make more sense, and then have definitions for those and kind of an explanation. Because I, I think our verbiage defines our outcomes a lot of times. And I know many who have studied caregivers say, well, they don't even recognize themselves in that role. Because, you know, like you mentioned before, their sons, their daughters, their spouses, um, you know, their siblings, their friends, uh, they don't they don't see themselves in that in that role. And, and I think it might help the medical profession put them on the team and understand their value a little bit more. I think you've you put get- your finger right right on the mark. And I think that caregiver is a very loaded term. And I think that. Uh, some people hate it and will never call themselves a caregiver. Um, and I think it's one of those things that probably researchers and clinicians have uh, pushed on caregivers, for lack of a better term, instead of um, the other way around. I mean, I think we call them that instead of them identifying themselves that way. It's, it's, uh, it is a big issue, and I think that care partner or care companion are better. It's sometimes people think that sometimes it. It um, lacks the intimacy that caregiver has, but I think that those are questions that we haven't answered. And I think you're right, Lori. I think it would be a great place for another survey. Yeah. So that's a well, plug, Meryl. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think also with the terms, I think I think care partner and care companion are much more intimate on an emotional level than caregiver. You know, caregiver is like caretaker. You know, you're the guard, you're the watchdog. And and I want to pull Harry and Craig into this, but we're running um, late on time, and I want to get through some other questions. But I think it would it it also puts in balance that the person they're caring for is still equal to them. And a lot of yeah. times that division doesn't happen, and that's a real important balance. I think that we have to we have to pull the needle back to. Um, what are some of of the challenges that you see with I- integrating family caregivers into the doctor's appointments? You know, I, I know there's HIPAA um, and some other health factors, but what do you, what do you see? Yeah, I think HIPAA is a big one. I think there's always a time constraint. And then I, I think that the other big one is that there's no, um, I mean, from a very practical point of view, I'm not saying these are good or bad. There, it's just that there's no billing code. So if you spend a lot of time talking to the caregiver, um, you know, care, physicians can't bill for that time. And so they tend not to do it. Those are some of the biggest challenges that we have, I think, um, from having a really family-centered or relationship-centered way that we deliver care. Um, 
I think some other ones are that physicians often don't have the training on how to talk to two people at once, especially when the patient should be the, 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 the participant or the patient should be the main focus, always. It is their health, and that's who we're talking about. But they sometimes have a hard time because they haven't been trained to go from one to the other and try and figure out how to negotiate that conversation. Um, and then I think the other thing is that I, sometimes I think that uh, physicians just don't really have a clear understanding of what the caregiver role is or what the care partner role is. And so setting expectations, trying to get that relationship defined maybe is the right term um, early on and how that relationship may change over time may be a really good start for people. And those are hard conversations to have. Um, they're hard for the, you know, even the best intention providers, I think, have a hard time with those conversations. But it's also really hard for people living with a condition and for their, their spouses or their children or whoever's with them. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I think, too, with um, with families, I know with, with my mom, I would always, back in the day, I would fax information to them so they'd have it so I didn't have to spend time in a conversation, but that they could have it. And I think sometimes we don't have those systems set up in terms of how does family communicate and, and utilize time the best. <coughs> um, excuse me. Um, why is it important to have collaboration between researchers and advocacy groups as a whole? Uh, I mean, I think it's critically important because sometimes, you, I mean, you have to be able to get the voice of the people who are, you know, who are afflicted or who are living with a condition or who are trying to, to do this type of day-to-day -day work. Um, advocacy groups have a different uh, approach and a different goal, but they can, for me, I mean, one of the things that I think of is they're wonderful partners because they care. You know, they really care about making sure that this work is done, but also they can also take the work to the next level. You know, I can write a research paper and publish that research paper, and I don't have as many avenues to the advocacy world to try and get it to a different audience. I can reach the scientific audience and the medical audience, but I don't have that broader audience that advocacy groups have. And I think it's really, really critical for us to begin to spread the knowledge beyond just, um, you know, the ivory tower research group. We need to be able to put this into the language that uh, for people that it really affects so them so that they can understand how they can push buttons on the policy side or or in the um, payer side. So to me, I think it's a critical part of this kind of research is to partner with, with uh, advocacy groups. Well, and I think the other piece there too is, you know, like I, I could take your paper and I could publish it on my site, but it still isn't going to connect to my audience if it's not summarized and put in straight words and verbiage, you know, common, yeah. common language. And yeah. um, because that can get overwhelming and, you know, all the references, we don't have time, you know, caregivers and people diagnosed don't have time to dig deep. You know, they need things and they want things summarized um, clearly so that they, they understand what their options are and, and what that study means to them or, or to others that it might affect. Um, so I think part of it is uh, the, the language and, and how we relate information. That's one of the reasons I, you know, for Alzheimer's Speaks, I created so many different types of platforms is everybody learns differently in terms of what they're looking for. Um, last question I want to ask, and then I want to get everybody back online here is, um, what are some types of, of um, interventions that might work to improve kind of that integration of family caregivers into the healthcare system and into those teams? Well, I think some of the, the obvious ones for us have been things like let's include caregiver a, a caregiver field in the medical record. So, you know, if, if we can include caregivers in the medical record, clinicians can begin to see who they are and that they're engaged and who they should reach out to. 
um, for researchers. It's a huge tool for us to be able to identify people. So that's an important and, you know, it seems like it would be an easy step, but it's much more difficult than that. Um, the other thing that we've heard from from caregivers and from people people living with the condition is that they would love to see separate time at appointments. I think you used a fax or, you know, communication ahead of time. Some people use their patient portal or, you know, uh, emailing their physician ahead of time. But some way for um, for the communication to happen without uh, sort of interrupting the healthcare appointment. I think one of the challenges that we found is that caregivers feel like the appointment should be focused on the on the person living with a condition appropriately so and they don't necessarily want to interrupt because it's it's maybe rude it may be embarrassing um, it may not be the right place for them to bring things up that would put uh, that they feel would put the um, the person living with the condition um, in a bad place and so they want to be able to make sure that the provider has all the information but not necessarily embarrass the person that they're with. So I think having some separate time or some communication system that would work um, where, you know, both groups, the caregivers and the people living with the condition can be heard and that information can be integrated into the um, recommendations from the clinical team would be a, a really important intervention as well. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pull Harry in and just see if you have any comments on, on what you heard. We only have like three minutes left, so it's got to be quick, Harry. I, I would love to have an hour to discuss it because uh, I, see, I see through the eyes of the person living this disease. And I get so angry because medical treatment is a business. Our doctor has so much time they can spend with us, but it's our life. It, at our memory cafes, we are now teaching people living with this disease questions to ask their doctor. If your doctor wants to put you on some kind of medication, we teach them the questions to ask, like, why are you putting me on this? Is there any other medication I could take? Is there autodent? Things like that. And we're finding out that the doctors are saying, well, we don't have time time for that now that this isn't the time to do it and my response is it's my life take time Mm -hmm. and i think until we get through that philosophy that change of thinking that um there has to be a better way i know i know doctors are busy and everything else but you know what we have to have our questions answered i i agree with you harry and i think um you know, I, I think we're working on this transition to, to make things better. And I think if we can realize that, you know, we have a shortage of staff to care for people, we better educate and we better take care of the caregivers, the care partners, the care companions as well, or we're really going to be in trouble. Um, Craig, anything that you would like to add? Um, just the fact that when I go to the doctors, I, I didn't realize that the physicians don't get paid if they're not talking directly to you. I found that interesting because when I go to the mm-hmm. doctor, they'll start asking me questions and I'll redirect them to my wife. Mm-hmm. She's observing me. She knows what's going on more than I do because at the time I don't remember what I've done or what I've been doing. Um, so yep. that's, that's, that's right. I automatically divert the questions to my wife. Sure. Okay, great. And Thank then, you. And then I was wondering if, if you could send me that uh, e-list address again? Yep, we will definitely get that to you because I know you guys will both push that out. Meryl, any last comments from you? We've got about a minute left. Yes, just quickly on the uh, caregiver-doctor relationship. And again, Joan is an exceptional researcher and is really focused on our lived experience. But out of respect, like you, Laurie, I used to type up my observations and hand them to the doctor. And I think what they're missing is the lived experience in between the clinical visit. You know, how many of us would put on a T-shirt so that we could be tracked just to add data? And I think we're, missed, we're missing that, 
the time in between uh, where we could add valuable information. So we're also looking in that space. But more importantly, right now, we really, uh, I don't care what you call us, it doesn't change what we do every day for loved ones or how we communicate with each other. Um, I think we, uh, we need to band together and uh, step up and use the A-list wherever we can. So I would invite you, Lori, to query your audience and see what topics you'd like us to uh, work on together and see the answers that we uh, share. And let's push that out. Let's do it. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs> Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.